0: you sappy music hey there fighting for the faith podcast listener just want to remind you at the top of the program here that fighting for the faith is listener supported radio you know no the music isn't working kill the music yeah sorry i see other guys who use sappy music i Bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, August 21st, 2012. Just to warn you, um, the new heresy hurricane season begins right after Labor Day weekend. So if you don't already have it in your calendar, you know, you might want to mark it. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, so what we do is we take out our Bible, roll up our sleeves, open it up, and look at it in context, and uh, to see if what somebody's saying squares, if it's true, if uh, if the pastor is saying the same thing that Scripture says. If they're not saying what Scripture says in context, they're not teaching you what the Bible teaches, uh, they're teaching you something different. And there's just a whole lot of that going on nowadays, and it seems to be uh, kind of the hallmark of uh, what goes on in the uh, seeker-driven, purpose-driven megachurches. Uh, Biblical fidelity, fidelity to what the Scripture says, sound biblical doctrine, that is not the hallmark of what goes on in so many megachurches. In fact, um, they seem to be doing the exact opposite. They are becoming the breeding ground of just some really weird, unusual, bizarre and exotic teachings. And uh, no pastor is called, uh, is really permitted or authorized by Scripture to engage in exotic teaching. Uh, The job of a pastor is to faithfully proclaim what is revealed and written in God's Word. And that requires him to read passages in context. It requires him to have some understanding, if not be fluent in uh, the biblical languages themselves. Uh, He needs to understand how the church has historically handled. Uh, different passages and texts, and he must know how to rightly preach Christ from just about every passage of Scripture. Why? Because Jesus himself says that, that, well, Scripture is about him. He told the Jews, you diligently search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, yet it is they that testify about me." So the scriptures are really ultimately about Jesus. Now, one of the alarming trends that we've been tracking here at Fighting for the Faith is uh, something that uh, we've... Uh, I can't remember the name of the listener who actually coined the phrase. So I, you know, I want to make sure you don't think that I get credit for coining the phrase, but uh, you know, we I use it regularly here. And from time to time, people actually credit we, me with the phrase, but I forget exactly which listener came up with it. But the phrase is, or the term is, Narcissus, and it's narcissistic eisegesis, Reading yourself into biblical text, and when you do that, oh boy, all kinds of really, really bad things happen. And this seems to be the epidemic, uh, you know, thing that's going on amongst certain guys, major leaders within the seeker-driven movement. I mean, you know, you take a, you take a passage that's clearly about Jesus. And they it literally wrestle the text in such a way that ultimately they make it about themselves. It's unbelievable how that happens. I mean, uh, if you look look at the New Testament, there's one person that the apostles were obsessed about preaching about, and it was Jesus. You look at the Gospels, they're all about Jesus. You look at even the Epistles, it's it's a, basically a theological interpretation of what Jesus has done, and not just in uh, the Gospels, but throughout all of the uh, history of the New Testament. And so when you read yourself into a biblical text, um, number one, you don't belong there, you're trespassing. Uh, number two, when you do that, you are literally twisting the Scriptures to your own destruction, because... You got to get out of the way, you, you know. I think, I think that uh, John the Baptist's phrase here applies regarding Jesus. John the Baptist said, "He must increase, I must decrease." And uh, believe me when I tell you, when a pastor shows up on the scene, you know, fresh out of seminary or Bible college, or sadly, the way a lot of guys show up nowadays, they just assert themselves. And, I had a vision from God, so I'm a pastor now. You know, <laughs> but uh, when those guys show up. Uh, it's it's as if then when they show up, they say, "Ta-da! I'm here." And it, it, isn't it great that you know for the church that I'm here to rescue the church? I mean, and so what happens is is they continue to increase while Jesus decreases. Um, you know, it's it's absolutely fascinating to watch. So you know, it's one of the things we uh, we we note here. And so today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, we've got some. <laughs> really reprehensible examples of narcissistic eisegesis, otherwise known as nar- Narcogesus, on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. We'll get to that. Let's, in fact, let's talk about what we're going to do today. Um, I've got a uh, Patricia King gang update. Um, you know, remember, we recently did a segment here about quantum prayer. I mean, uh, somebody has you know, received a vision from God, and the vision from God told this woman that uh, she needs to be, praying for people down on the molecular level. I mean if if you're not praying for people on the molecular level, I mean good night. I mean you're just you're not praying powerfully enough apparently. But uh, we've got a follow up to that. Um did you know that when it comes to quantum prayer, there's also quantum sounds and quantum healing? This is starting to sound like the new age to me, but we'll uh, we'll be listening in on uh <clears throat> on that segment today. I've got a quick news story I want to get to uh, from the religious uh, news service, uh, megachurch high may explain their success. Megachurch high, and the word high is in parentheses. Literally, uh, some kind of brain chemistry high may be going on in these seeker-driven worship experiences. And uh, this, uh, the religious news service is explaining that. Um, and then uh, we'll take a break and when we come back. Um, we, you're not going to believe this. You know that passage from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus takes the disciples to Caesarea Philippi, right? And then he asks the disciples, who do people say that I am, right? Okay? That passage, and, you know, and eventually Peter steps forward and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? Okay, that passage of Scripture, I mean, that's one of the hallmark passages of Scripture about Jesus. (laughs) Well, um... As ridiculous as it sounds, um, I've got audio from uh, this week's sermon from Stephen Furtick where he literally takes that passage of Scripture and makes it about himself. No joke. You gotta hear it to believe it. So we got uh, we got that to, to finish out to hour number two, and then hour uh, sorry not hour number two, hour number one. Then in hour number two, we're gonna go to Pennsylvania, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and review the sermon entitled "More Ordinary" or "Mordinary." You know, it's two words together, "Mordinary" by David Ashcraft of uh, LCBC, and uh, he makes it clear that the sermon some you know that he's preaching "Mordinary" is. Somehow based upon Stephen Furtick's book, "Sun Stand Still." So, um, yeah, just gonna be a great program. I can hardly wait. Anyway, uh, because of the, uh, the the stuff that you're going to hear on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, I think we should play our uh, our quick warning here.
1: Warning, the following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith, Cranial Keyboard Embedment Syndrome, sinew Nasal Liquid spumant Disorder, Steering Wheel Pounding Clenched Fist Strain, Continual Gaping Dry atosis, and Frustrative Disbelief Brain Explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended.
0: So have you been trying to uh, engage in quantum prayer and pray for people's molecules and protons and neutrons and bosons and things like that Um, because of Charlotte Busygaard's segment we uh, did a few weeks, uh, well, not a few weeks, you know, a a while ago, recently. Well, here's a follow-up to this particular strange teaching regarding quantum prayer. Charlotte Busygaard claims apparently... There's quantum sounds that go along with quantum healing and things like that. Um, Yeah, here's Charlotte Boosegard to explain.
2: Hi, my name is Charlotte Busigard and I'm with XPmedia.com. And I'm here to talk to you today about quantum sounds and healing. Now, our words are very powerful and every single word that we speak Contains a color, a sound, a frequency, a vibration, and a numeric equation.
0: R- really? Every word I speak has a color and a numeric equation?
2: Where'd you get this information from again? So, how much more does music contain? Music carries color, sound, Frequencies, vibrations, numeric equation. It's been scientifically proven. And what I also want to talk to you today about is Lucifer and the fact that he was the worship leader in heaven. We know that the Bible says... So
0: he was a praise band guy. <clears throat>
2: says that. So when Lucifer walked, his whole being was actually made up of musical instruments and his voice was unbelievable. The Bible... <laughs> what? <laughs>
0: Really, Lucifer's entire being was made up of musical instruments.
2: Wow. Does make reference to this. So, who better than Lucifer to know the sounds and frequencies and vibrations of heaven because he was actually the worship leader in heaven?
0: Yeah, I mean, this is some steel trap logic right here, yeah. You know.
2: So, the Lord's been revealing to me lately that. They- oh,
0: no. <laughs> oh, really? So, the Lord's been revealing stuff to you lately. Not in his word, though, right?
2: There are specific sounds that the devil has counterfeited that he does not want us to get a hold of. What the Lord has been revealing to me lately are particular instruments. Um, I actually went to a musical
0: instrument. So there's particular sounds from specific instruments that Satan doesn't want us to get a hold of. Really?
2: instrument museum this past weekend and it was a gigantic facility in the phoenix market and it was incredible there was instruments associated with every single country uh, you can think of the indigenous uh, uh, instruments that were created in these various countries and when um it came to asia uh, and different instruments that were created in asia when it came to to the gongs the Lord was actually showing me a revelation regarding the gongs and how powerful the sound of a gong is. And when you actually hit a gong, when you actually hit a gong, you could actually, you could feel the massive frequencies and vibrations that are coming off of the, off of this, off of the gong.
0: So the Lord revealed to you that there's massive vibrations and things that Satan doesn't want us to have control over from a, from a gong. I had no idea that that was the case. Um, please tell me more.
2: I was able to play various types of gongs in various sizes and thicknesses as well. Um, so what Satan has done, we know that gongs are mainly associated with Asian countries and they're utilized to worship their various gods and deities. But the- are
0: you sure you got this from the triune god father son and holy spirit the one who's revealed in scripture that he wants us to bang gongs
2: the lord was showing me that this is a very powerful sound that we need to embrace that we need to take hold of and this actually can cause uh healing to take place in our body
0: right so if we bang a gong it'll bring healing to our body may i suggest a, a brand new praise song it's actually not brand new this is from a power station from 1985 See, with this new revelation from God Himself, I think that this would be an important praise song for us to incorporate in our worship sets on Sunday morning. Say, gratuitous Fighting for the Faith musical interlude. Closer to God already. That that song is a little bit redundant. You know, well, never mind. That that actually makes it so it's qualified to be a, a new praise song. So we need to incorporate that in our praise and worship set um, from Power Station from 1985. <clears throat> gong.
2: we talked about in a previous video called quantum music healing therapy that every single color of the rainbow is also in a specific key and also heals different parts of your body um, indigo is associated with the key of a with the key of a purple is associated with the key of b yellow where are you getting this from again yellow with the key of e orange with the key of d Red with the key of C, green with the key of F, and blue with the key of G
0: What this has to do with the Bible I have no idea
2: uh, with the key of with the color blue being associated with the key of G, for example, if you have problems with your throat or the base of your skull or your lungs you sure you're not getting
0: this from like the new age I, I seem to recall that the new age has stuff that really kind of fits into this category. This almost sounds like an identical Teaching to what I've heard in the New Age. Weird.
2: Or fever or uh, eczema. If you listen to classical music in the key of G and surround yourself with blue light and blue color, it's actually going to help to bring about healing in those areas. This is Do you
0: have any colors that will help with weight loss? I'm just curious. It's
2: been scientifically proven. The Lord also showed me with another instrument, the sitar. The sitar is a... Vi- what? very powerful instrument and when it's played i can actually feel the cells in my body my body just uh and
0: god revealed that the sitar and the gong are powerful ways for us to be healed by hmm you you sure this is from god the holy spirit the you know Third person of the Holy Trinity, he's the one who said this is gonna bring healing.
1: We
0: oh, okay, that's creeping me out. Okay, really, again, I just have to. This was God the Holy Spirit. Right? That told you this?
2: Uh, My frequencies and the vibrations in my body. My body just starts jumping when I hear sitar as another example along with the gong that I mentioned earlier, the sitar has been mainly associated with Middle Eastern music, again, with the worship of their various hundreds of gods that they
0: Demons. They're demons.
2: Have. We need to embrace these instruments, the sitar, the gong, other... Really? And God told you this. ...instruments that are mainly associated with the worship of other gods because, again, the Lord's been giving me revelation on this.
0: Oh, yes. Yeah. So we got to embrace pagan Hinduism... In mysticism, because God told you, right,
2: that He is the Creator. He's the one that created these sounds, and it is mainly used. For, for us that we need to embrace it and it could be used for our benefit especially along the lines of healing so um, go ahead, the book that I was referencing earlier where you can read about the various colors and the musical keys that they're associated with, actually Barbie Breath, it's uh, Dream Encounter Symbols Volume 1 book and be sure to watch my previous video like I said on uh, quantum healing mus- music healing therapy and along with uh, quantum transport as well, thank you
0: so much, and God bless. Uh-huh. Late, um, we're, we're up on our first break. If you would like to um, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. When he asked Peter, "Who do you say that I am?" Jesus wasn't looking for affirmation. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
3: Marty Python's Flying Circus Church
0: The management of Marty Python's Flying Circus Church would like to again apologize. Normally we try to do parody here at Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Unfortunately, the church continues to just parody itself. Case in point, Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed Shofar CD. This is a real commercial.
4: When Rabbi Michael Zeitler blows the shofar, miracles take place. He wants to see God break every stronghold of the enemy in your life, healing you emotionally, physically, even in your relationships, bringing salvation to your entire household. Call now and receive both Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed audio CD, Sound of the Shofar, plus his brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, for a donation of $25. Shipping and handling is included. Ask for offer number 9081. Listen to this anointed audio CD. Allow God's glory to fill the room as Rabbi Rabbi Zeitler shares from the scriptures and then blows the shofar over every issue you are facing, including mental and emotional disorders, confusion, fear, stress, grief, nightmares, insomnia, pain, sickness and disease, addictions, eating disorders, weight loss, injustices, persecution, finances, marriages, rebellious children, freedom from the occult and demonic oppression, and so much more. Through Rabbi Zeitler's brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, you will learn how you and your family can obtain supernatural protection in the midst of the entire, judgment's about to be unleashed on planet earth don't miss out on getting both rabbi michael zeitler's anointed audio cd sound of the shofar plus his brand new prophetic book why israel is supernatural for a donation of 25 dollars, shipping and handling is included ask for offer number 9081 call or write today
5: Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together, both religiously and spiritually, to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's religious Trojan horse. It's 500 pages over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com, I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in biblical worldview weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and biblical worldview weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our worldview weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the situation. Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net. Situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical worldview weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com.
0: Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. U.S.A. Hey! All right, we're back. Warning, if you think that we should be adopting... Eastern mysticism musical techniques for healing because that gal claimed she heard from God. Yeah, you got another thing coming. She's deceived. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio and there are perks associated with that. We're currently putting the finishing touches on an ebook that we will be making available for our crew members in the month of September and uh, it's a, a tiny little book uh, written by Martin Luther. You'll you find it very fascinating. It has to do with while preaching the Word of God, that and that the Word of God is the thing that's supposed to be in church. I'll give you details as we get closer to September, but that'll be our perk uh, for the month of September for all of our crew members. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do that by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And uh, thank you for your support, and it's not too late for you to get your bake sale items for this year's uh, summer bake sale. Uh, visit piratechristianradio.com dot forward slash bake sale, and you can still get a T shirt or a bracelet that my mother in law made. So you don't want to miss out on that. All right, moving along from the religious uh, religion news service, the headline reads: Mega Church High may explain their success. Mega Church High may explain their success this is written by uh, chris Liss, uh, lissy of the religion news service and the, uh, the here's how the story goes maybe religion really is the opiate of the masses just not the way that karl marx imagined A University of Washington study posits that worship services at megachurches can trigger feelings of transcendence and changes in brain chemistry, a spiritual, quote, high, that keeps congregants coming back for more. Quote, we see this experience of unalloyed joy over and again in megachurches. That's why we say it's like a drug, said James Wellman, an associate professor of an American religion, who co-authored the study. The study, God is like a drug, explaining interaction rit- uh, ritual chains in American megachurches, was presented Sunday, August 19th at the annual meeting of the American Sociological Association in Denver. Large gatherings of shared experience like concerts and sporting events also trigger similar feelings of euphoria, said Kate Cochran, a Ph.D. candidate who co-authored the paper. But she said, quote, churches seem to be somewhat unique in that these feelings are not just experienced as euphoria, but as something transcendent or divine. The authors theorize that the spiritual high from megachurch services is experienced as an, oxy, uh, as an oxytocin cocktail of shared transcendent experience and the brain's release of oxytocin, a chemical that is thought to play a part in social interaction, emotion, uh, and uh, group experience, have been shown to raise levels of oxytocin. One congregant reported, quote, God's love becomes... Such a drug that you can't wait to come get your next hit. You can't wait to get involved to get the high from God. Another said, quote, You can look up to the balcony and see the Holy Spirit go over the crowd like a wave in a football game. Cochran said, "Mega churches create the high through their unique style of worship." Cochran said, "Mega churches use technology and appeals to emotion to create a shared experience in congregations that number in the thousands. The upbeat modern music, cameras." Uh, scan the audience and project smiling, dancing, singing, or crying worshipers on large screens, and an extremely charismatic leader whose uh, sermons touch individuals on an emotional level serve to create the strong, positive emotional experiences, Cochran said. The pastor functions as an energy star, who engages the congregation through an accessible, informal, and emotional sermon rather than just being analytical or theological. The message, quote, just feels right or just makes sense for congregants, Wellman said. To extend the spiritual high beyond Sunday, churches feature small group activities such as Bible study, book clubs, and volunteer activities, the researcher said, but it's the Sunday worship that brings People back the study bucks the idea that larger churches produce weaker member commitment. Nearly eighty percent of the congregants said so the church size did not hinder their spiritual growth. So here's the idea: um, that redundant, repetitive 7-Eleven praise song thing, rock concert thing that goes on at the beginning of uh, seeker-driven um, churches. Well, it's creating, uh, basically, your brain's releasing chemicals that are causing you to become addicted to a natural high created by them. I don't think it's God the Holy Spirit that's really creating that experience, though. It's just emotional manipulation because it was important to note that the um, the authors of the study also said that similar experiences, almost identical experiences, occur when people that, uh, attend sporting events and rock concerts. Same thing. I mean... I, I get it. I mean, I've been a part of large crowds. I mean, I remember back in the 1980s when I attended the uh, U2 concert at the Los Angeles Coliseum. I mean, when they were were at the Rattle and Hum uh, Tour. It was an amazing concert. I mean, it's seared into my brain, and there was a euphoric experience that went along with it. But see, that's the thing. This, to me, sounds like the emotional manipulation of the rock concert portion of the beginning out of the seeker-driven church service is uh, basically hooking people using brain chemistry, and that's not necessarily the work of God the Holy Spirit. Interesting stuff. Okay, moving along. Time for a Stephen Furtick update.
1: You walked to the pulpit. Thank you
0: Think the Bible's about you, you're so vain. I bet you think the Bible's about you, don't you? Don't you? The Bible's about you You're so vain I bet you think The Bible's about you Don't you Don't you Yeah, that's our uh, Stephen Furtick update music You're so vain I think the Bible's about you Even passages about Jesus Like Matthew chapter 16 It's absolutely fascinating To watch In a terrible way Anyway, let's um, kill the music. See, I'm trying to uh, give you like an oxytocin high so that you'd be addicted to fighting for the... Never mind. Anyway, so uh, this past week, um, Stephen Furtick uh, preached the latest sermon in a sermon series. We're not going to review the entire sermon uh, because the reality is is that Stephen Furtick is becoming a lot like Joel Osteen in the sense that uh, you listen to the first five to ten minutes of the sermon, and you get it, okay? It's pretty, it's pretty patent, you know, he's got like a, a pattern that he goes through, and you can get the gist of it r- really early on, and so, but what, like I said at the beginning of the program, he's going to take Matthew chapter 16, no lie, the passage where Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am, he's going to basically read the text, Affirm that Jesus is the Messiah, and then basically, literally, I mean, shove him off the stage, hijack the text, and make it about him. It's it's unbelievable. Uh, but till you know, I just want to prepare you for what it is that you're going to hear. And don't worry, I'll fix it along the way. We'll I'll actually teach the text uh, so that you can see that it's really not about Stephen Furtick or you or me or anybody else, but. Uh, here is uh, part two of, uh, you know, the opening portion of part two of his sermon series, I Know He Is But What Am I? <laughs> with a name like that. And By the way, at the end of this, uh, this segment, you're going to hear how Stephen Furtick decides what he's going to preach about. No kidding. Oh, and like Charlotte, uh, the quantum prayer gal, um, Stephen Furtick also hears God talking to him directly. Strange stuff. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> here we go.
6: I want to share with you today. Uh, from the word of God in Matthew chapter 16 verses 19 excuse me verses 13 through 19 and something life changing to bring to you Um, maybe I should share a little bit of the premise before I share the scripture and it'll help you feel the scripture a little more I have a gap in, in my life between what God has said
0: about me and what I see in me. What exactly has God said about you is be like the next thing I would ask. What are you talking about?
6: And I struggle with that gap. I read a book one time about fatherhood, a really funny book, and the author said this one line. He said, I started writing everything down about what it was like to raise a newborn because he said you forget everything out of sleep deprivation and sheer frustration and being overwhelmed and he said i think one of the reasons that you forget everything about having a newborn is because memory loss is the key to human reproduction <laughs> you have to think about that for a minute but it's a um interesting thing he he wrote a whole book about stuff you're not supposed to say as a new dad and Yet a lot of dads feel, but there's like a cover-up in the world that all the dads only talk about how great it is to be a dad and how much their kids have, you know, stolen their heart and changed their life for the better. When, in fact, a lot of what you're thinking is, you know, they've stolen. What they've stolen is my, my sex life, my sleep. Oh, it's a little too real, a little too early in the sermon. I want to act like you know, nobody has sex. I don't know how everybody got here. It's the weirdest thing. I have a church where nobody has sex. They don't care about sex. They just pray. It's so interesting. But, <laughs> but, but he talks about the gap. And I, I like the way he said the line. He said, there, I noticed a persistent and disturbing gap between what I was meant to feel and what I actually felt. I think if you interviewed
0: a lot of Christians... Okay, th- th- now that's the problem. That, that That's kind of the, the metaphor for the setup for the problem. That there's a gap between what I was meant to feel and what I'm really feeling. Okay, is this a real problem apparently? I just... Okay, all right. And so this is what the problem that Matthew 16 fixes? Really? Christians. And they were
6: able to be honest off the record with you. And a lot of preachers who won't be honest with you on the record kind of paint another picture. But I think if you could ask a lot of people, um, they're, they're frustrated about the gap, the persistent and disturbing gap between who God says they are and what God has said they can do, should do, and will do, and the way they actually live, the way they actually feel if I'm not in this alone and you have a gap to raise your hand and I want to read you the scripture.
0: I'm not even sure I understand exactly what you're saying. Now, before you read the scripture, I'm going to butt in here and we're going to teach. We're going to look at this passage ourselves before you do anything, uh, pastor Furtick. And uh, we're going to take a look at this and see if Matthew 16 addresses the gap, the gap between who Jesus says you are and the what you are in your life the gap okay apparently okay so so this passage apparently addresses the gap fall into the gap anyway all right so Matthew chapter 16 verse 13 now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi yeah this is outside of Judea so he's in pagan territory here he asked his disciples who do people say that the son of man is they said Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But he said to them, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay, I'm going to pause there for a second. Here is the great confession, okay? And it's important to note, from about this point forward, Jesus begins to set his face towards Jerusalem to go and to be crucified, right? To fulfill his mission to die on the cross as our substitute for our sins. You know, not just our sins, but for the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist said, right? Okay? So this is the great confession. Okay. And it's not about me. It's not about you. This is about who Jesus is. The most important question probably anybody can ask somebody, you know, what say you about Jesus? Who is he? Whose son is he? Okay. That's an important question. Okay. So Peter says you are the Christ or the Messiah. Okay, that's the idea. The, the, uh, the Greek word Christos, okay, that, that is this, the, basically the Greek equivalent to the, the Hebrew word uh, for Messiah, Mashiach. And so the idea here is, is that Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the one promised in the Garden of Eden, okay? And not only that, he confesses that Jesus is the Son of the Living God which is critical here, because at this point, Peter is confessing that Jesus is none other than God in human flesh, the God of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant, in human flesh, okay? This is like the answer to the most important question. Who do you say that I am? You are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. Jesus' response Blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Okay? Um, Hmm. Uh, Anything here about the gap? I see a lot about who Jesus is. Now, important to note here, Matthew 16, where Jesus says, And on this rock I will build my church He's not pointing to G- he's not pointing to Peter. He's not saying on this rock you Peter I'm going to build my church therefore making Peter the first pope. No. The church has historically understood this and this is really laid out clearly in the preaching of the ancient church fathers prior to the usurpation of the bishop of Rome that the rock that's being referred to here that the church is going to be built on built on is the confession of Peter that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God. Okay. And Jesus here, basically you can, you can say that Peter is stepping forward as a representative of the 12 and the 12 are the church kind of in utero. The church hasn't really been birthed yet officially. Um, But he's speaking here. And then basically Jesus points to Peter and basically is pointing out all of the attributes of the church are summed up in Peter's confession. Okay, And Jesus promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, right? Built on the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Who is this passage about? This passage is about Jesus. It ain't about you, it ain't about me, and it isn't even about Peter. You know, know, in one little degree, you could say Peter has some kind of a supporting role, and he's blessed there. He is blessed because he has been, you know, God the Father has revealed this important truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? And Jesus is going to build his church on the rock of that, of Peter's confession, okay? But then it goes on, okay? I'm going to continue. Now, from this time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and to suffer many things, Um, from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and to be killed, and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Notice the rebuke. He's got his mind not set on the things of God, but on the things of man. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me." For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And what will you, uh, profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in, glory, in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his glory. Okay? So you see what's going on here? Who is this passage about? Jesus. Now, if we were to say it's about Peter, uh, and notice the theme of the sermon is, I know he is, but what am I? That that That's literally the, the name of the sermon series. I know he is talking about, I know God's great, but what am I? Okay, that's the question. This doesn't tell us anything about you or me or anybody. Okay? Does it even tell us much about Peter? Well, that he's sinful, yeah. Um... You know, here well, on the one hand, Jesus says, "You're you're Peter, you're Petros, and on this rock, the confession of what you've just you know said, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church." But then he turns around and says, "Get behind me, Satan." <laughs> so what did Jesus call uh, Peter? He called him the rock, and he called him Satan, and he disconnect. You get what I'm saying here? It's like there's nothing here. For some kind of teaching us how we have to view ourselves. Except for we're told to deny ourselves. Because that's part of the full teaching of this text. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Consider yourself to be a dead man walking. That's what Jesus says. Consider yourself to be a dead man walking. Take up your cross. Follow Christ. Right? So let's see what Stephen Furtick is going to do with this text. I guarantee you he's not going to key in on the deny yourself part. We continue. And so I'm finding that it's easier to believe
6: what I say about God than it is to believe some of what God says about me. And last week I preached a sermon that I thought, It wasn't my best sermon because I wanted to do more with it, and I didn't get where I wanted to go with it. And I apologize for that, but I'm going to try to make up for it in 27 minutes today. Is that we got to know who God is before we can truly know who we are. And if you live your life with assumptions, you're going to have a messed up assessment. And that will result in an incorrect direction in your life. And... So that's what the series is all about. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, there's an interesting encounter that's really pertinent to our discussion today. The Bible says when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? It seems strange that Jesus would feel any need to run a public opinion poll, um, considering that he does not operate necessarily by democratic Uh, principles, precepts, and ordinances. But he asks that to his disciples, and it's there for a reason. We'll see in a moment why he did it. In verse 14, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or Bullfrog or one of the prophets, Um, if you caught that. I know it's cheesy, but what you got to realize is I got people in this church who'd never have been here before. And the fact that a preacher would just start talking about Jeremiah was a bullfrog in the middle of the sermon. It can be the thing that can make them go like, oh, cool, man. This guy isn't just like this guy. This guy's cheesy and he's kind of corny, but I kind of like him. And then that's you, you got to slip that stuff in there. You can't just get up here with all that heavy handed, you know, church talk all the time. Not if you want to reach people.
0: uh, Yeah, I'm so glad you threw in the Jeremiah was a bullfrog reference. Wow, how missional of you.
6: um, So anyway, there's a lot of opinions about Jesus. There were then, there are now. And uh, last week, hopefully, I at least made it clear that we don't get to define the parameters of God's personality or character. He does. And so after they answer Jesus uh, with, with the latest results of what people are saying and thinking, in verse 15, he asks, some, some theologians claim, what is the most important question in human existence? In verse 15, he says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And then Simon Peter answered, of course he did. If you know your Bible, he always did. He was rarely right, but he was never silent. <laughs> and he answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And everybody's holding their breath. And Jesus in verse 17 says, replies, Ding, ding, ding. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are. Peter. I love it. It starts with, I am, and then it goes to Peter telling Jesus, you are, and then Jesus says to Peter, now that you've correctly identified and confessed who I am, I'm going to show you who you
0: are. That's not exactly what's going on there. I'm going to show you who you are. That's not exactly what's going on there. And what I want to do through your life. And that's where we want to take this. Yeah, I got to back that up because I want you to hear it in context. So he's his interpretation at this point, which is a weird one, is that no sooner does Peter, you know, say who Jesus is, that Peter says that that Jesus then says of Peter who he is and what he wants to do in his life. I know it sounds close, but it's not. There's there's a qualitative issue here
6: to Peter telling Jesus you are and then Jesus says to Peter now that you've correctly identified and confessed who I am I'm going to show you who you are and what I want to do through your life and that's where we want to take this sermon today when when you begin to confess the lordship of Jesus and you begin to confess the absolute rule and authority of God uh, even if you don't understand it all because Peter certainly didn't He didn't even want Jesus to go to the cross. Um, In just a few verses, Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, Lord, you've got to skip this bloody massacre, crucifixion. Uh, This can't happen to you. And Jesus tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now, in the span of about, I don't know, eight, nine verses... Peter has been called Simon, that means shifty, that's the name he was given at his birth. And then he's called Peter, which means the rock, it's from the Greek word Petros, that's a cool nickname to be given by the Son of God.
0: Yeah, this is like missing the forest because of the tree. The text is about who Jesus is. And so what he's doing is he's keying in on Peter as if that's some kind of a model that we need to apply to ourselves. Jesus telling him who he is and Jesus is going to you got to you got to remember who you are and, you know, and stuff like that.
6: I would take great pride in that. I would get shirts made for sure and wristbands (laughs) and and then he gets identified as Satan. And so there seems to be a gap for Peter. Uh, between what Jesus calls him, the rock, and what he tells him he's going to do through him. Listen to this. He goes on to say, uh, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it.
0: The, the, the rock there referred to by Jesus is Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the rock that Jesus is going to build his church on.
6: I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loose
0: in heaven. The, the office of the keys is given to the church as a whole.
6: And what Jesus does here with Peter, I'm praying in the closing moments we have together today that God can do for you, and
0: it's a, it's a little three-point sermon that I What God did for Peter here. Notice the text is about Jesus and now we're, you know, he's, he's basically going to shove Jesus. He's shoved Jesus off stage. We're going to Oh wow. Look at Peter, man. Oh, this is a great one. Wow. Way to go. Peter, the text isn't about Peter. He's got a supporting role here. The star is Jesus.
6: want to do from this passage. And here are the three points. All the OCD people are going to feel like you've achieved something because you're going to write all the points down at once. Um, And so that's going to be a rush of accomplishment for you. Um, Here's the three points. Correction, protection, connection. Correction, protection, connection. Three things I see in this passage that were important for Peter now that he knew who Jesus was. To become who Jesus had called him to be. And do what Jesus had called him to do. Correction. Jesus is not what the people say that he is. Jesus is not just one of the prophets. He's the true and living God. Protection. Even the gates of hell will not prevail against the identity of God's church and God's child. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting to me how much of what we call an attack of the devil is really just an assault on our identity in Christ. And it comes from within. I saw an ad the other day for... Okay, listen to this part. ...for one of these companies, they protect your online identity. The, the company is called LifeLock. And the slogan they had was, wouldn't this make a good subtitle for this series? Relentlessly protecting your identity. Relentlessly
0: per- protecting your identity. And the passage, Matthew 16, is about the identity of Christ. Who do people say that I am? This is about Jesus. This isn't about you or your identity. Ah!
6: Relentlessly protecting your identity. If you're going to live above that that state called Simon, shifty and Now he's allegorizing Peter. Shady and shaky and quakey and and flippant and inconsistent and hypocritical. And if you're going to live in the place God has called you to live, then then you're going to have to relentlessly protect your identity in Christ.
0: Is there a biblical passage that actually teaches this?
6: Daily moment by moment, thought by thought, word by word, event by event, maybe the main job of the Christian outside of worshiping and glorifying Jesus Christ for who he is, is
0: relentlessly protecting your identity in him. Relentlessly protecting your identity, not proclaiming the identity of Christ. Unbelievable.
6: If... You will protect your identity. God will direct your activity.
0: Really, if I protect my identity, God will direct my activity. Do you have a Bible passage that actually says that? Because just an in-context reading of the entire uh, chapter of Matthew 16, um, that's nowhere taught in there. It's not even a valid inference from the text.
6: If you will focus on what he has said about who you are, he'll lead you into doing everything he's called you to do.
0: So uh, Jesus called Peter Satan. Um, That's who Jesus said Peter was there in Matthew 16. Um, So should he have pursued that identity? Because that's who Jesus said he was, right? It doesn't make any sense. What you're doing to this passage doesn't make any sense. Let me reread to you the tail end of this teaching from this gospel passage. Okay? Here it is. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Here, you're you're doing the exact opposite of that. Deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Okay? Yeah, this is not what this text is teaching, Stephen. But the problem is,
6: of course, that we get attacked by what I call O.P.A. O.P.A.
0: Yeah, O.P.A. The Bible doesn't mention O.P.A.
6: And that stands for other people's assessment.
0: Where's the OPA in this text, by the way? Other people's. As it pertains to Peter. Assessment.
6: It's a little bit different than the song that came to your mind when I said it. But it's, it's, it's crazy to me. And the Lord really spoke to me about this recently.
0: Now, here we go. The, the Lord is speaking to um, Stephen Furtick. I guess the same way the Holy Spirit speaks to Charlotte Busyguard. And really the sermons that I preach uh, are an
6: outflow of what I'm wrestling through and struggling through in my own life.
0: Right. See, that's the problem right there. Your sermons are an outflow of what you're wrestling and struggling through in your own life. That is the problem right there. Your job's to preach the Word. And the struggles you're going through in your life, they aren't supposed to be in the pulpit. The Word of God is supposed to be in the pulpit and the Lord will challenge me with something, and then I'll challenge you with it. Now watch what he does here. This is fascinating. He's going to reveal, apparently, the verbatim uh, words that he heard God speak to him, and then he's going to exegete them. I'm not joking. He's going to exegete, exegete a direct revelation he claims comes from God.
6: That's how this works best. And recently, God said something to me, and I don't know if he said it in these exact words, or this is just how I wrote it down. But he said, you spend way too much energy obsessing over your assessment of other people's assessment of you. And that's messed up.
0: And of course, Matthew 16 has nothing to do with this whatsoever. It's about Jesus, the Christ, the son of the living God.
6: And that's, and that's draining and that's debilitating, right? Right. Think about the sentence I just said.
0: Now he's going to exegete. He's going to exegete this direct revelation.
6: Over your assessment of other people's assessment of you. You're not even obsessing over their true assessment because you don't know that. You're obsessing over your dysfunctional, clouded assessment of their assessment of you. Now i got a jacked-up person assessing the assessment of a jacked-up person of their jacked-up life. What hope do I have of becoming who God has called me to be? You know, this might be a little crass, but I don't mean it in a cuss word kind of way. Um, God, God didn't necessarily say this next part to me, but this way I wrote it down. I can't spend my whole life staring at asses. Ass- assessment, ass, the first part of that word. I can't. I can't spend my whole life. Yeah, go ahead and look at me
0: like that. I ain't worried. Yeah, he wasn't sure if that actually came from God. But he did write it down as part of the revelation.
6: ...about what you think about me. That's how I wrote it down, and that's how I'm going to say it. It's, it. it's not wise to spend your whole life staring at the assessment, the, the, the assessment, when you spend your whole life just staring at assessments from others. Jesus said, Peter, you're going to do some dumb stuff. You're going to deny me. And say you never knew me. But in
0: that moment when you go back to fishing and you have your biggest identity crisis. Notice, notice the way he's reading the biblical passage. Peter is the main character. Jesus is in the supporting role. Peter is being life coached by Jesus. Okay? So Jesus is the, is the one who's there to help Peter achieve greatness in his life. That's why he's not preaching Jesus. Because Jesus is in the supporting role rather than the main role in the way he reads the scripture. Why? Because that's how he, he that makes it possible for him to read himself in there. When you make Jesus in the supporting role, Jesus is the life coach, Jesus is the guy to help you achieve greatness, then what happens is, is that he sees Peter as the main dude in the story. And so now he can put himself in there. I'm just like Peter, and Jesus is coaching me to greatness just the way he coached Peter. Uh, Peter to greatness. See, now we can read the Bible and make it all about ourselves. That's what he's doing.
6: That you've ever had, I want the name that I called you to be louder in your spirit than the way that you failed me.
0: Well, the name that uh, Jesus gave Peter at the uh, tail end of Matthew 16 was Satan. So what are you going to do with that? That proves he's not rightly handling this text. Another breathtaking example of narcissistic eisegesis, otherwise known as missing the forest because of the tree. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there at Pirate Christian. Sermon review on the other side of the break. We'll be right back.
3: Relevance Shmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the
0: Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman.
3: From the creators who brought you Bible Pants and Vision Lacks comes the brand new super special awesome comedy album of the 21st century! Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater of the Budgie Cuts! Part 2. We here at Pirate Christian Studios have been hard at work crafting this album for maximum quality and hilarity. You'll cry. You'll laugh. You'll scream. And you'll have uncontrollable flatulence.
7: Stick to the script,
3: please. So sorry, um buy it now while stocks last.
7: They download it. There is no supply of which to run out.
3: Oh, so you mean they can just go right onto iTunes and download it? Yes. Like right now. If they want to, yes. Oh. Well the heck with this commercial. I'm up to buy it right now. Get back in here. We're not done yet. Max Holidays, Bird Cage the Buddy cuts part two. Disapproved of by Heretics Everywhere. Get it before they do. <laughs>
0: Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. Uh, This will be a psychoanalyzing um, version of narcissistic eisegesis. Yeah, there's all kinds of different ways to just read yourself into the text. And when you do that, you miss the whole point. Which means you really miss the gospel. And you teach a different gospel and false doctrine and all kinds of stuff. Here we go. bad the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us via lcbc which means life's changed by christ Uh, the name of the sermon is mordinary m-o-r-d-i-n-a-r-y by david ashcraft and this lcbc is in harrisburg pennsylvania pay attention to uh what david does to the text here We'll be beginning, if you want to get your Bible ready, uh, flip on over to Exodus chapter 3. Yeah, pay close attention to what he does here. There's all kinds of psychoanalytical, narcissistic eisegesis going on in this text. And without any real concept of the real context of what's going on, yeah. Let me go ahead and kill the music. So, hang on to your hats. This is a... An adventure in missing the point by reading yourself into biblical texts when you ain't there. So let's kill the music. Without any further ado, here's David Ashcraft and his uh, masleration entitled
7: Mordinary. Here we go. Well, do you ever get the feeling that you're just kind of sleeping through the best years of your life? I mean, do you ever kind of wish that there was something a little bit more remarkable about your life?
0: (laughs) We're off to a really bad start. Really? Okay. Yeah, um. Do I wish there was something more remarkable about my life? What a weird, narcissistic question. You know, I, I thank God for people who do the ordinary. I mean, I remember the days when, uh, when there would be trashmen who would go on strike. And, you know, they'd be on strike for three, four weeks. And you know what would happen when the trash collectors go on strike? The trash piles up and things really begin to smell bad and there's vermin in the streets and stuff like that. So I'm thankful for the guys who get up every single morning and love and serve their neighbors by getting on a trash truck and picking up trash. I think those guys are heroes.
7: Is that what you mean? Ever wish that your life wasn't quite as mundane as it seems to be? And, and because really, you say, you know what, so much of the time it feels like you're just going through the motions. It feels like you're just living your life in a daze. And you're thinking that nothing ever really remarkable happens to you. And, and about as remarkable as it ever gets. as you get- And, you know, I'm thankful for moms, you
0: know, moms of small children. I mean, talk about mundane, waking up every day with, with an infant changing poopy diapers, making bottles, feeding the baby, cleaning the baby. You know, your whole life revolves around the baby. barely get any time to uh, talk to, you know, adult human beings. And yet, that's a good work because God says that it's a good work. And boy, do I, I am so thankful for the, for the women who do that because here's the deal. Babies can't raise themselves. It takes a mom and it takes involvement. And so I'm thankful for the women who do the ordinary, who pack the lunches who um who do the laundry who help with homework and stuff like that that's that's not something to be despised that is a, a, that is a godly vocation for which I thank god that there are people there
7: who are willing to get into the ordinary rut of that kind of daily life is that is that what you're talking about to get some kind of new toy or a new hobby, and, and you kind of think that's going to do it, but that doesn't even become all that remarkable. It really becomes pretty ordinary for you, and and then you'll hear some people talk about the fact that, well, what you need is God and God is somehow going to help you out of this mundane life that you're in. And, and yet when you really think about it, you look around at people that claim to be followers of God and you look at their lives and you say, you know what? It seems like for them, all God really is, is just kind of this drug that sedates them so that they can actually make it through a life that they hate. And you think, well, I don't need that. I mean, I don't want to be kind of sedated through a life that I hate. And So if you were here with us last weekend, and a remarkable weekend, over 18,000 of you were either in Harrisburg or in Mannheim or in Lancaster City or in York with us, and we kind of introduced you last weekend to a man named Joshua. And Joshua was a man that did what many of us do. He actually made a real bad decision, and it was a decision that he made without ever even thinking about God, never even thought to consult God when he was making this decision. And eventually... It was such a bad decision. He ends up having to call on God to say, God, I need you to help me get out of this situation, this bad situation that I'm in because of the bad decision that I have made. And, and the amazing thing about it, to me anyway, is that even though Joshua never even thought to talk to God about this decision as he was making it, God steps back into the situation as it's bad and it helps clean up Joshua's mess in an incredible Incredible way. And
0: you notice that Joshua is the main character, and God is playing a supporting role in Joshua's life. You know, God is there to coach and assist Joshua to doing something great, even though he made a
7: bad decision. Because we all make bad decisions. Many of us, we know what it's like to make a bad decision. I mean, decisions that that I would guess. Most often, we make without ever even thinking about God. Never even enters our mind, and so consequently, a lot of us are sitting here, and we're sitting here with broken relationships. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a consequence of sin, not just a bad decision. We're we're sitting here with a lot of financial pressure that does not go away. Where we're sitting here, uh-huh. that may, again, there may be sin involved, not just bad decisions. Kind of with addictions that cause us to fall and get yeah addictions. That's more than just a bad decision, there, dude. Again And again and again, and and maybe with physical and emotional wounds. It's the last physical and emotional wounds. Us, yeah, that sounds just terrible. Yeah, what a bane. This weekend, I actually challenged you to kind of invite God into your situation. To invite, just, just like you know, Joshua did, you know, just invite God into your
0: situation. You, you've made some bad decisions and if you invite god you know he, like you know joshua when he made a bad decision god stepped back in and and you know fix things you know so if you made some bad decisions just invite god in and he'll coach you into a
7: better better decision making by god into the mess that you created in your life and my guess is that a lot of you kind of did said okay god i will invite you into this situation but now you look back over the week and you say well i I'm not sure that a lot happened this week, and and I'm not sure that God has gotten involved in my situation, and and actually, I'm not even sure what it would look like if God got involved in my life, and I mean, how would I know if God actually accepted this invitation that I've extended to him to get involved in my life, and
0: (laughs) That's that's a great question. I mean, so I prayed this prayer last week to invite God into my mess, you know? There's, the Bible nowhere tells you to do this, but I, you know I, I just said you know i 've made some bad decisions, and so I invited God into the mess of my bad decisions. so the good theological question, how do I know if God took me up on my invitation? What if God just went? Eeny meeny miny moe, and uh, I'll get in- involved in your mess and then not yours and yours and your... In fact, one, let's- I- I count everybody off. One, two, three, four. Again, one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Thank you, threes, for coming. I'm not going to be involved in your mess. But uh the one, twos, and fours, I've decided that I'm going to step in and coach you through the mess of your life. Thanks for inviting me into your mess. Uh, but threes, thanks for playing
7: along. But... Y- y- <sighs> So today, I actually want to introduce you to a guy that that found himself in a bad situation, and I want you to see how God actually showed up in his life. And I
0: think, yeah, please, yeah, because yeah, I can't wait. We'll be in Exodus three. This we're talking about Moses. You know, Moses made some bad decisions, but
7: God showed up and you know helped him out in his life. I think by going to school on this guy's life, I think what it might do is it might give us a look at what it looks like. When God gets involved in our lives as well. And so let me ask you to grab a Bible, open it up to Exodus chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there's some right there in the seats beside you on all of our campuses. Exodus chapter 3, it's page 45. I'll tell you the page number, page 45 in the Bible's there at your seats. And as you're opening up, your Bibles. Let me just remind you that we're kind of basing this series off of a book by, by a guy named Stephen Furtick, and the book is entitled Sun Stand Still, which, by the way, I'll just tell you, the, the book, it's a great book, it's a great read, and it's available out in the atrium on all of our... Ca- no, it's not a great book. It completely mangles God's Word and doesn't teach sound biblical doctrine and teaches narcissistic isogesis. ...campuses for purchase if, if you're interested in that, and just kind of a good way to take this series a little bit further. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Let me begin reading verse 1. It says, One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. Now let me just stop right there and say that Moses has been running from a bad decision that he actually made 40 years before this this day. 40 years before, Moses actually had taken the life of another man. Yeah, that's more than just a bad decision. That's called the
0: sin of murder. You familiar with the idea of sin? Why is it that you keep referring to sins as bad decisions? As if, you know, somehow the
7: solution is just make better decisions. And it wasn't what he had intended. His intentions were actually good. He was just trying to protect another man from experiencing abuse. And so Moses had come upon this Egyptian guard who was actually abusing a Hebrew slave. And though Moses had been raised in an Egyptian home, he was actually Hebrew himself. And, and so when he saw this Hebrew slave being abused... Something just kind of snaps inside of Moses. And maybe it was the years and years of watching abuse and oppression. Whatever it was, something snapped inside of Moses. And a fight ensues. And over the course of the battle, Moses ends up killing this Egyptian. So in fear, Moses runs away to the wilderness as far away as he can possibly run. In a remote, desolate place. The most remote, desolate place that he can find. And so for 40 years... Moses has been wrestling with the guilt after committing this murder, but he's also still wrestling with the frustration of all the abuse and the oppression that's taking place to the Hebrew slaves in Egypt. And 40 years is a long time to run. 40 years is kind of a long time to put up with a bad decision. 40 years, and you've got to be wondering, is it ever going to change? And can I just say, some of you, you know, you're saying, it's been a long time, a long time that we've been dealing with this. Um, where's the part where Moses is going, oh, it's been 40 years, God.
0: My life is so ordinary. When are things going to (laughs) change? I'm suffering. I don't even have a good job. I work for my (laughs) father-in-law. I want to be important. God, please rescue me
7: from the ordinary. Where, where is the part where Moses is saying that? And for you, maybe it hasn't been 40 years. For you, you know, it's amazing for us, we, we think one week. You know, It's a long time. God, what are you doing? Two weeks, two months, two years. It's a long time to kind of put up with a bad decision. 40 years for Moses, and um, it's a long time. But in that 40 years, Moses actually finds a wife, begins working for his father-in-law, and his job is very just kind of manual labor, it's just tending his father-in-law's sheep. So in verse 1 of chapter 3, we actually read about Moses and his very first encounter with God. And the way that this kind of happens is Moses and God is... It, just, it ought to be encouraging for any of us that feel like, you know what, we're kind of stuck doing something average. There's nothing exciting about our lives, maybe because of the bad decision we've made. Maybe it's not even because of a bad decision. We're just kind of stuck in this mundane life. And in this situation, Moses is living this incredibly ordinary life, very mundane, far side of the desert. He's tending sheep, not even his own sheep, his father-in-law's sheep. You, you do understand that there is so much more
0: going on here, Okay. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who appears to Moses, okay? Israel was saved from the famine by Joseph, right? You know, he was sold into slavery, and he becomes, through the providence of God, he becomes second in command in all of Egypt because of a dream, a prophecy, regarding a famine that's coming. And Israel is saved from the famine. They all moved to Egypt And there they are enslaved by the Egyptians. You know, what happens is is that Pharaoh and Joseph die, and the, the children of Israel living in Goshen, and then they are enslaved by the Egyptians. And they are in slavery for 400 years. But God foresaw this, told them it was coming, and promised to deliver them out of slavery and bring them to the promised land. You, you understand there's, like, a big thing going on here, right? This, and this, it, oh, man, I mean, talk. this is, like, the, one of the most important stories in all of salvation history, and you're now turning this into a story about, you know, there was Moses, you know, he grew up in, you know, uh, the king's palace, but then he made a bad decision, and, you know, he... Kind of sort of killed somebody, but he had good motives and you know, good intentions, even though he murdered him but you know and so he ended up suffering the consequences, and so he went from being you know like a prince in Egypt to you know you know having to you know run for his life and but that's okay you know he he got a wife along the way and and, you know, he was tending sheep because he, you know, he ended up getting a job working for his father in law. And, and, you know, and so, you know, you think, he was thinking, oh, Lord, how long do I have to suffer for the bad decision that I made? I, I, wa- I want to be so much more than just a shepherd out in the middle of nowhere. And, and see, and that we can take hope because that's what the story's about. What a selfish self-centered, narcissistic,
7: self-loving, ridiculous reading of this text. A bush happens to catch fire, and, and Moses walks over to take a look at it. Again, verse 1. Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go and see it. Now, if you're like me and you grew up going to church, and you grew up going to Sunday school, that I remember hearing this story. And the teacher would always make this story sound so exciting, so amazing, when in reality, when you kind of peel back the layers, and you take the illustrious kind of things out of it, this burning bush encounter that seems so captivating in Sunday school to me is really quite I would just say ordinary. There's nothing all that special about it. I mean, here's Moses. He's performing this menial manual task. Nothing exciting about his job. He's working for his father-in-law. And you kind of say, does it get any more mundane than that? And. Moses isn't even actually captivated by the burning bush because apparently historians say that that wasn't all that unusual of an occurrence. Because in the dry extreme heat that he was in, I mean, it was something that happened from time to time. But what did catch Moses' eye was the fact that this burning bush did not burn up. It just continued to burn and burn and burn. Now can I just say, as you're waiting for your first encounter with God... Here's what you need to understand. As you're waiting for your first encounter with God, see, you've made some bad
0: decisions in your life, but you're just like Moses. You're waiting just like Moses for your first encounter with God, like in the burning bush, because God's going to do something big and monumental in your life, just like he did in Moses' life. See, that's why we,
7: that's why God put that story in there, right? Unbelievable. See, when you strip away from all the biblical miracles, all their spectacular special effects, then what you discover is that these extraordinary moves of God always begin with ordinary occurrences. The extraordinary works of God always begin with ordinary acts, acts of obedience. And and if you're living in this mundane, ordinary life, but you've invited God to step into your life and the mess of your life, then understand that almost all the encounters that God had always begin with just kind of very ordinary events. And see, you might be living under the illusion that that when God shows up in your life, it's going to be huge, it's going to be dramatic, that he's going to announce it with this big bang. And he might do that, but more than likely, it's not the way it's going to be. And so stop waiting. Yeah. So what's it going to be like when...
0: God comes and reveals himself to divulge the big
7: important thing he wants to do in my life around for the big bang to happen in your life and begin to pay attention to the subtle little clues and the still small voice of God because God is in the, the what in the still and the small as well and see what we call a miracle Really what it is, it's just kind of the right combination of all of your ordinary ingredients. And then you put that together with God's extraordinary expertise. And all of a sudden you've got what we call a miracle. But it almost always begins with something very, very ordinary. So maybe you receive um, a phone call from your doctor. It's a very negative report from the doctor, and so it's going to involve all kinds of things. And you say, man, this is very mundane. This is very ordinary. And yet you decide in the midst of all this that you're going to trust God in a way that causes all of your close friends to actually see Jesus. Now now we're just going to start
0: speculating. We're We're going to come up with all these hypothetical things that you could possibly do where God is going to appear to you in an ordinary way, which is really in disguise God's burning bush experience for your life so that you can lead people into the promised
7: land and set them free from Pharaoh through you and through your response. And so you take your ordinary situation, you mix it in with what God is doing, and all of a sudden you've got something that's very extraordinary. So, you know, your marriage, essentially it's dead. And you're just kind of enduring a bad situation, going through the motions, which seems really very ordinary to you, but, but, but God also provides you with just the strength you need to be a little bit loving and more forgiving to your husband, which that provides just a little spark. And that little spark just kind of rekindles what was once dead into something now that's alive. And, and you say, man, okay, really, what was very ordinary, all of a sudden it's become something very extraordinary. Or let's say you're involved here at church and you're leading a group of, of teenage boys. And you say, you know, it doesn't seem like anything is happening at all. I mean, you just get together on Friday nights and you go down to your moldy basement and you play video games. And you say, you know, that just feels very ordinary to you. And yet, God also provides you with the opportunity to speak into one of the boys' lives who, who's going to go on and is going to kind of reach thousands of people and thousands of places that you could never go. And all of a sudden, what was very ordinary, you become part of something that, that really is extraordinary or... Or let's say as a mom, you make the choice that you're going to stay home with your young children. You're going to forfeit a second income. And you say, you know what? My life feels very ordinary. But but along with the diapers and the dishes and the naps, you actually receive a gift of time. And with that gift of time, you're modeling discipline. And and you're instilling values. And you're speaking life into your kids. And, And they may grow up to be leaders in their own generation. And so what was very ordinary to you all of a sudden has the possibility of becoming very extraordinary. You Again, notice the expectation that something
0: extraordinary is supposed to happen, but now you're supposed to look for it in this tiny little ordinary tight things that are supposedly happening in your life. Rather than, rather than thanking God for the opportunity for loving and serving your neighbor in the vocation you're in, okay, see that you just need to have a broader view because maybe while you're doing that ordinary thing that you just don't like, that's really the result of bad decisions, that maybe God will use that to to do something amazing. Uh Uh-huh. It seems to me that we're all called to ordinary vocation. The Apostle Paul in Thessalonians, I think 1 Thessalonians 5, admonishes the Thessalonians to work quietly with your hands. You know? Work quietly with your hands at your vocation in order to support yourself and save a little extra to, you know, to feed those in need or to support those in need. Pretty ordinary, but it doesn't say anything about, but that's the ordinary way in which God's going to do something extraordinary in your life. Why is it these people despise the ordinary so that we have to imagine that the ordinary is the means to the hidden extraordinary? Why can't the ordinary just be the means to even more ordinary? Because God needs the ordinary to be done. In fact,
7: God's word tells us that these ordinary tasks are good works. Yourself in a line of work that to you, you say, you know what? There's no value to what I'm doing. It's it's just a job. And and you kind of think, you know what? But it's not just a job. It's
0: serving your neighbor in your vocation. I thank God for the guys who get into their cars every day and commute to work in heavy traffic in metro areas. Why? Because they're working for the companies that sell the things that I need on a daily basis at the grocery store or at the mall. or You get what I'm saying? They serve me by doing a good work at what they do. That's. See, I'm not going to sit there and say, that's extraordinary. But see, that's the thing we're all called to love and serve
7: God, love and serve our neighbor in our vocation. There's no real fulfillment for me in this job. And so you're saying, you know, this feels very ordinary to me. And, and yet maybe you're the only Christ follower that many of your co-workers or your clients are ever going to meet. And they're going to observe in you what God is actually like. And, and as you labor with excellence and with integrity. And so all of a sudden, what was very ordinary has the possibility of becoming extraordinary. So I would just say, as you invite God into your life, quit looking for the big bang. Quit looking for something dramatic. Instead, look around kind of your desert. And it might be your office. It might be your classroom. It might be your living room. It might be your neighborhood.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're in a desert. Your work is not a desert. It is what you are given
7: to do to serve your neighbor. And it's a great thing. And if God is stepping into your life, usually it's going to start in some small way with a burning bush that only you are going to notice. Nobody else is even going to notice it. And so God actually ignites this ordinary life of Moses by calling Moses to lead a nation of people out of slavery. It's the very thing that Moses was running from, and God asked Moses to get involved in a mess that Moses helped create. So look at verse 7 in Exodus chapter 3. Do you really think that Exodus chapter 3 was written so that you can figure out how
0: to get through your own personal desert, you know, because of the bad decisions that you made so that you can learn how to look for God in the ordinary circumstances so that you can receive your assignment for a movement that'll,
7: no, this text isn't about you at all. It says then the Lord told him being Moses, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I'm aware of their suffering, so I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt in their own fertile and spacious land. It's a-
0: yeah. God's the main character there. He's gonna do what? Wow! What
7: an amazing God. Let's hear more about him. The land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 9, God says, look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. So God says, I see your situation, I'm going to step into it. But then verse 10, he says, now you, Moses, go, for I'm sending you, Moses, to Pharaoh. You must lead my people, Israel, out of Egypt. And as you talk to God about your situation... As you invite God into your situation, what you need to know is... Now, remember, he gets this interpretation from Stephen Furtick's book, Uh, Sun Stand Still. Asking God into your situation goes hand in hand with acting on whatever God is going to ask you to do in your situation as well. And so go ahead and ask God to get involved, but understand that he's going to ask you to get involved as well. And, And if you invite God to get involved in your life, he will get involved. But he's going to invite you to get involved also. And God's invitation to you to step out of the ordinary, it's not going to fall from the sky. It's not going to be something big and dramatic and kind of hit you in the head. And so you've got to train your eye to look for it and listen for it. And God will get involved in your life. If you ask him, Unbelievable. he will definitely. This is like chasing your subjective spiritual tail and it just running circles. To get involved in your life. But he also says, you know what? I'm going to move you from this mundane, ordinary life to something extraordinary, more than you could ever imagine experiencing. But, but it's, probably, it's probably going to come when he kind of taps into some very ordinary responsibilities that you have or very ordinary opportunities that you may have in your everyday life. And, and something small all of a sudden is going to catch fire. And, and so, again, don't be disillusioned by the lack of special effects in your life. Maybe you're standing right next to a burning bush and right where you live right where you work, but as you invite... Yeah, you're standing right next to a burning bush, right where you live. Go find that burning bush, quick. invite God into your situation. He's going to turn it right back and say, okay, that's great, I'll get involved, but I'm going to invite you to get involved as well. And so he does that to Moses, and Moses has an interesting response, verse 11, to God's invitation. Moses protested to God. Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? In other words, Moses is saying, God, this is a great idea. I'm glad you're going to get involved, but, but I'm really rather ordinary. I'm not all that impressive. I'm not even qualified for this. Can't you find somebody better for this job? And I look at Moses' response, and you know what I see? is so often, and it's unfortunate, but so often we kind of default on the potential to see God work and do something impossible in our lives because our response is the same to God the way Moses responds to God. Where, where Moses just kind of says, you know what? I mean, who am I, God, to get involved here? I mean, I'm not qualified. Look, God, I'll just stay here in the wilderness. I'll just stay here with my father-in-law's sheep. And, and oftentimes we ask God to get involved, and he says, okay, I'll get involved, but here's how I want you to be involved. And, and we've got kind of the same response as Moses. and so we say, no, not, not me, God. I, I can't do this. You see, you're, you, this is all about you learning how to be just like Moses. Wow.
0: Who knew the Bible was all about me and my great assignment that God has for me? Unbelievable.
7: Hey, all I'm trying to do, God, is live a decent life. I mean, I'm just trying to stay out of trouble, pay my taxes, have a family, make a living, maybe buy a boat. You know, when I'm 59 or so, maybe collect retirement. Yeah, notice. I mean, now we're, 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 he's just
0: putting excuses into our mouths, you know, as to why God can't use us in
7: extraordinary ways. Well, it's weird and just kind of then die at some point, but I can't get involved in this. God, you you got the wrong person. And, and maybe like Moses, you might be thinking you're unimpressive. I mean, You might be thinking you're not really qualified. And, and if you're thinking that, I'd actually say that's good because God actually performs the most impressive feats that, that he performs through the most unimpressive people. So if you're thinking you're unimpressive, if you're thinking you're unqualified, then get ready. God has the potential to do something real big in your life. And, Actually, when Jesus was walking the earth 2,000 years ago, he was pulling together and enlisting some people to walk with him. And he pulls together just this ordinary group of people. And at that time, there was no shortage of talent. There were people that were trained in the finest schools of the day. And, and yet Jesus picks a tax collector. And Jesus kind of picks guys from a family fishing business. And, and so if you think you're unimpressive, if you think, oh, I don't know that I can do this, God. God says, well, that's great because I'm going to ask you to do it. And I'm going to ask you to get involved with this. And and when God asks you to get involved, see, one of the things that you also need to realize, when it comes to cleaning up the mess of your life, when it comes to moving away from the mundane and the ordinary, it's not even all that much about you. As much as it's about God, and we think it's all about us, what we're able to do or not able to do, and what we're capable of doing and not capable of doing, but the truth really is, it really is more all about God than it is about us. And what is God capable of doing? So, so look at God's response to Moses verse 12. Moses has said, I can't do this. God, I'm not qualified. Verse 12, God answered, I will be with you. I'll be with you, Moses. That's really all you need. It's not about you. It's about me and what I'm capable of doing. Summer is just right around the corner. My guess is over the summer months, a lot of us are going to kind of head off to the shore at some point during the summer. And Stephen Furtick actually tells about this experience that he had at the beach with his five-year-old son one particular summer. He said they were playing a game that probably you've done before. I don't know if you ever thought of it as a game or not before. but He calls it a game and calls the game Wave Jumper. And let me just give you a brief description of kind of this game Wave Jumper and how it actually works. He said it always begins by spending just kind of quite a bit of time convincing his five-year-old son Elijah to kind of, you know, playing in the shallow water and kind of the foam of the water. That's fun, but it actually, it's more fun if you get out into the deeper water. And and Elijah just kind of looks very uncertain, but Stephen insists. And Elijah hesitates, but finally he agrees to go out a little deeper. And so they together wade out a little deeper into the water. And the whole time they're walking out into the water, Stephen says he stands behind Elijah, just holding Elijah's hands up high in the air, just kind of holding on to him tightly Elijah's hands. And the farther that they wade out, the better it is. And so Stephen takes them out to a place where the water begins to hit Elijah in the chest. And there they wait for a big wave. And as they're waiting for the wave and they see the wave rolling towards them, Elijah says, you know what, I think I want to go back to the foam and uh, get out of this deeper water. But Stephen convinces them that everything is going to be okay. And Elijah seems relatively assured enough to say, okay, let's give this a try, but just one time, dad, we're going to do this one time. And, And finally, the wave arrives. And Elijah kind of screams to make sure that dad is in position and dad assures him that he's right there behind him, holding on to his hands. He says, right at the last moment, just before the wave wipes Elijah out, then Stephen jerks Elijah up out of the water high enough so that the ocean spray in the water doesn't hit Elijah in the face, doesn't get in his ears because he says, Elijah hates to get his face wet, hates to get water in his ears and... And then he says, Elijah just laughs uncontrollably. And he just proudly screams at the top of his lungs, I'm the wave jumper, daddy. I'm the wave jumper. And he says, they kind of jump one after another after another. And Stephen says, what five-year-olds lack in strength, they make up for in endurance. And then so he says, you know, what was going to be just one time ends up being again and again and again. And Stephen goes on and he says, I don't have the heart. Nor does he say, nor he says, do I really feel the need to explain to my five-year-old son that technically, he's not really the wave jumper. I mean, technically... You know, if he was going to be correct, what Elijah ought to scream at that point is I'm the hand holder, I'm the hand holder because that's all he's doing. He's just holding on to his dad's hands because everybody knows dad is actually doing all the heavy lifting here. And, and in reality, all Elijah has to do is only assignment in the whole game. is just minimal. It's just kind of keep his hands reaching upward and just trust that when the wave comes, dad's going to lift him and pull him out of the water high above the water. And could I just suggest to you This is really kind of a picture of how it is for you and me. When we choose to work together with God and we trust God to do great things in our lives, and it, it just kind of illustrates really kind of just a fact of life that as the big waves roll in towards us, then the God promises, he says, I'll do the heavy lifting. I'll lift you out of the water. He says, all I'm asking you to do is wade out into the deep water with me and, and you keep reaching up to me. And he says, I will hold your hands and when the waves come, I'll, I'll lift you above it and I'll take care of you. And see, if you ask God to get involved in your situation. God is going to ask you to get involved as well. And I hate to break it to you because this might kind of deflate your self-esteem. Uh, how can I ask God
0: to get involved in my situation without expecting that I have to be involved in my situation? If it's my situation, aren't I already involved? <laughs> this is
7: not what this text is teaching. But but technically when you're doing this with God, you're not the wave jumper. I mean, technically, and you say, you know what, the risks are high. When I get into the deeper water, the risks are high in following God. And and I know it's not a game, but but understand, you're not alone by a long shot. And you're not even the one primarily responsible for the outcome of what you're experiencing. Because really, you're just the primarily responsible for the outcome. Hmm hand holder. You're not the wave jumper. And God, your heavenly father has this firm grip on you. And this vantage point is way above the level of the water. And he's bigger than you and he's stronger than you. He's got you safely in his grip. And and actually, when you get right down to it, you're not even the hand holder because he's the one holding on to you. All you have to do is just wade into the deep water, put your hands up and he'll grab you and hold you. And, and so really, he's the wave jumper. He's the wave jumper. And Maybe you've got some real fears about what might happen if you decide to stick your neck out and follow God. He said, well, "What should I do?" And I say, "Well, before you go out, and- <sighs> man, th- this sermon is grating on me because there isn't a single coherent biblical thought in any of it." and swim out any farther. Definitely take a good look at the situation. Make sure that it really is God that's leading you into the deep waters. Think about the ramifications. Apply wisdom to the situation. But once it's clear that God is calling you out into the ways, then don't you dare kind of shrink back from the situation and go back to the shallow, foamy water. And instead, keep moving out deeper and keep your hands up for God to hold on to you. And a lot of times, the, the, the greatest fears that we have they're just kind of rooted in our personal insecurities. And it's, but I just say, remember, God is actually on your side. Or, or sometimes maybe our fears kind of stem from the lack of resources. And we say, God, I don't know that I've got the resources to do what you're asking me to do. And, and yet realize God says he is able to meet all of your needs. Or, or maybe your fear comes from just all the negative comments you get from the people around you that say there's no way this is going to happen. And But, you know, those voices, they'll never be silenced. But if you begin to follow God, at some point you begin to understand that the voice of God and what he has to say about you and what he thinks about you is more important than what anybody else actually thinks about you. So so if you're afraid of kind of some of the gigantic changes that you sense God is going to bring about in your life, I I would just say, understand your fear is normal. I mean, that's normal to have that. But what happens is, as you follow God out into the deeper water... As you experience one wave and you realize he is going to lift you up over the water, then all of a sudden you realize, okay, I think he did it last time. I think he'll do it this time. And you experience it once and you experience it twice and you trust him again and again and again. And each time you get more confident in the fact that God is going to take care of you. He is the wave jumper. Can I tell you one of my greatest fears for all of us and for so many of you? My my greatest fear is that you will live your life as a would-be wave jumper. But you never get out of the foam and you never really get into the game. And you just kind of hang back in the shallow water because you're afraid. You have fear of what the risk is going to be. And so many people, even followers, people. This has nothing to do with Exodus 3. the, The text isn't about me. Well, that would claim to be followers of Jesus. They never wade out into the deep of water, deeper water because they're always afraid of the unknown. But remember, the one who actually creates the water, commands and calms the waves, he's actually the one that keeps you from going under. And he knows you don't like to get your face wet. And he knows you don't like water in your ears. And he's, he's going to take care of you when every wave comes. See, you miss out on the action if you're not willing to get out in the deeper water and get out over your head. And it's like, keep your hands up high follow God out into the water, he's going to hold on to you and have faith that he can lift you above all of your circumstances and all of your fears. Can I just tell you one thing I've noticed about God, though? is when he is with us in that deeper water and he's holding on to us and the wave is coming. Seems like a lot of the time he waits until just as the wave is getting there to lift us out. And I suppose that's where faith comes in, where you guys say, okay, God, it's coming. I'm going to trust you. But I would also say that's where the fun comes where you don't know exactly what's going to happen or how he's going to do it or when he's going to do it. Let me tell you just about a wave jumper real quickly in the Bible. His name is Jonathan, and Jonathan actually... Jonathan's a wave jumper. Never knew that actually overcomes his own fears and the fears of all of the people around him. And he wades out into some deeper water and he grabs the hand of God, the real wave jumper. And let me just describe the situation to you. Jonathan is actually a warrior, also happens to be the son of the king of Israel at that time. And Israel is involved in a battle with a group of people called the Philistines. And the Philistines are actually winning the battle so much so that, that the army of Israel is noted more for looking for caves and hiding in caves than they are for actually engaging in the battle. And So Jonathan finally has enough. Apparently he becomes so irritated at the inactivity and the fear of his fellow warriors, he decides that he's going to do this bold thing. And and, and so he enlists his armor bearer to kind of join him on a two-man kind of commando raid. How much do you want to bet that
0: Jonathan knew more Bible than anybody at LCBC and Jonathan only had a portion, I mean a fraction of the Old Testament
7: compared to what we have right now? And the battle that he is kind of thinking through in his mind, this plan that he has in his mind, potentially it's God-inspired, potentially it's ludicrous as you think about it. And essentially these two young men are going to openly approach an enemy outpost. And they kind of say if they get the sign from God to go ahead, they're going to go ahead. And, but they're going to be outnumbered, they're going to be outmanned, they're going to be under-resourced. And it's almost a borderline suicide mission. But, but if God is with him, Jonathan figures, nothing and stop him. And so all he's got to do is talk his armor bearer to go along with him, which isn't necessarily an easy task. And so he gives this motivational speech to, to the armor bearer to say, look, come with me. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 14. It's page 220.
0: So what was Jonathan's burning bush experience that told him that he was
7: supposed to do this? I'm curious. First Samuel chapter 14, page 220. I just want you to see what he says to his armor bear to get him to go along. 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 6, page 220. And this is what he actually says, again, as he's trying to persuade the armor bearer to go with him. Verse 6 of chapter 14. Jonathan says, let's go across to the outpost of those pagans, the Philistines. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, here's his motivational speech. Perhaps the Lord will help us. I mean, maybe God is going to help us. And then he kind of throws in, for nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win any battle, whether he has many warriors or only a few. Now, it may just be me but, but if this was me and you're trying to convince me to join you in this initiative that is so dangerous, I kind of want better than perhaps the Lord will be with us. You know, maybe God will show up. And then he kind of throws in "Well, really nothing can hinder the Lord. Nothing can stop God. And you almost like Jonathan speaking out of two sides of his mouth. And in one breath, he kind of communicates two very opposite kind of positions where he says, maybe perhaps the Lord will show up, but, but nothing can really stop God. And and you think, man, what are you saying, Jonathan? And and yet, I think that's kind of what it feels like sometimes to be a wave jumper with God. Where, on the one hand, I know God's able to do anything. I, I know. Yeah, And the Bible nowhere tells me to be a wave jumper with God. I know that. But, but I don't know that he's going to do it in this situation. I know, God, that you can take care of things if you want in this specific situation. I'm pretty sure that you will, but I don't know for sure. And... And I think that's where faith comes in. And faith is not the absence of uncertainty. Faith is not the absence of ambiguity. I mean, faith is really believing that God's promise is bigger than my perhaps, bigger than my fears. And, and when you think about what God wants to do in your life, and he's asking you to be a part of it. I mean, you feel overwhelmed when you think about the possibilities. And I would just say if you feel overwhelmed, that's okay, because probably you're just wrestling with a lot of the same fears that Jonathan and his... Where is repentance and the forgiveness of sins? Here you're basically just saying
0: invite God into the mess of your life, and, and, you know, and he's going to make you a wave jumper and things like that. Where is repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins?
7: It's totally missing from this. Armor bearer actually felt as they dared to kind of charge this enemy hill, one sword between them, no backup behind them. And, or I would say you're going to feel the same kind of fears that Moses felt when God asked him to lead a nation of people to freedom.
0: Or I would say, Yeah, because you know whatever God's called you to do is just as big as that
7: you're going to feel the same kind of feelings that five-year-old Elijah has when dad is trying to convince him stop splashing around in the foam come on out into the deeper waters where the action is and see it's not wrong to feel fear what you know what this does is by basically allegorizing the text and then comparing
0: it to the things in our life it totally robs the scripture of the power of the amazing miracles that took place in those stories it reduces them down to just mundane asininity, and as a result of it, I mean, I mean seriously, I mean, the, no liberal could do a better job, as far as I'm concerned, in basically saying we're not going to take the Bible literally. So what we're going to do is we're going to allegorize this text. This is what liberals do: they attack God's word and just straight up say this didn't really happen. So we're going to allegorize it and say it's, it's some kind of a Aesop's fable. These guys claim that they believe the Bible is the word of God, yet they refuse to take it as it is. Instead, they're doing the exact same things the liberals do and allegorize it, turning it into Aesop's fables.
7: But What's wrong is to let fear have the last word in your life. and Don't wait till you're 100% certain before you decide to follow God boldly. And whatever you do, don't take your cues from complacent people around Follow God boldly to do what? Found you. People that they themselves are happy just playing in the foam, just kind of pretending to be wave jumpers when they're not. And a lot of people in your life might be totally, I mean, they're totally content. To just kind of play in the kiddie pool. Never get in where the deeper action is, but maybe God is calling you to something deeper, something different. He's going to lead you as a way of setting an example for other people of what it really means to be a follower of God and an example that's going to fill them with this longing that they too want to experience what you're experiencing. They too want to experience God's power in their lives. And I mean, if somebody needs to make the first move, then why not? This is not Christianity. I don't know what this is. Be you in making this first move. And so Jonathan... This armor bearer that they actually end up saving the day in a very spectacular way. I mean, they charge God is with them. They kill over twenty Philistines in their first attack. Their act of faith actually is the tipping point for the whole nation of of Israel because the king and six hundred of his leaders actually hear about Jonathan's success, and so they come out of hiding and they attack the enemy. And God gives them a spectacular victory in the whole thing. And you know what? I really believe God is equally capable of bringing out a spectacular victory in your situation as well i mean he's got the ability to do it right cuz i'm surrounded by philistines if we're willing to follow him and so what's your perhaps what's your situation we you go perhaps god will show up here and i mean what wave is god calling you to jump and is it a what are you talking about a relational change? Is it a financial leap? Is it just kind of a costly sacrifice? Is it some kind of drastic transition? See, one of the things I know about God is He doesn't typically show us the next wave. He just shows us how He's going to deal with the wave that's coming. He's going to somehow lift us above it, and but but He's always got His arms holding on to our arms at every step of the way, and He knows every fear you're facing. He knows the uncertainties that you're navigating. He knows the perhaps that you're feeling. But for him, it's not a perhaps. It's all a matter of perspective because he sees what's coming. And for him, it's an opportunity for your life to change. And so I would say, just be honest with God. Talk to him about your fears. Tell him what you're feeling. Acknowledge, kind of assess the situation and just deal with... Yeah, no need to confess your sins. You just made bad decisions and just, you know,
0: Be honest with God in in, in assessing the the mess that you've made.
7: Appropriately with your fears and then give God, you know, just say, God, okay, look. God, give me the assurance that you're going to be with me. Why should we expect
0: God to be with us when we've sinned against him? You haven't even talked about the cross
7: and being made right with God by the sacrifice of the Son of God. If I walk out into deeper waters and I put my hands up, just tell me again that you're going to grab my hands, that you're going to lift me when the waves come. And say, God, just keep me tightly connected with you. When your wave comes crashing in, then I was like, be ready to jump. And you jump. And God will hold on. And God will lead you. And God will guide you. And Whatever you do, don't go through life in a daze. Whatever you do, don't sleepwalk through the best years of your life. Wake up. Get out of the foamy, shallow water and tell God that you're ready to be a wave jumper with him. Tell God you want to get involved. Really? So the close of the sermon is, wake up and
0: tell God you're ready to be a wave jumper. What is God supposed to do with uh, with a prayer like that?
7: with him and changing your life and tell god that even though you're afraid you're actually trusting him so that when every wave comes at you that he's going to lift you above the water time and time again i mean wake up tell god that you're ready to be a wave jumper keep your hands up wait out in the deep water with him trust him because god says i am i mean wh- why don't i
0: just wake up and tell god i'm ready to be a synchronized swimmer i mean th-
7: the wave jumper I will hold on tightly. Heavenly Father. Done. Done. Oh,
0: my. Again, this was based on uh, Stephen Furtick's book, Son, Stand Still. And I want to point out again, what's the fundamental flaw here? Why is it that they are mangling the scriptures and totally missing the point of all of these texts? answer because they believe that god is really not the main character in scripture or that christ is not the main character even in the gospels god is there in a supporting coaching role for you to achieve something great god wants to do something amazing through you and he's coached other people to you know to miraculous greatness just look at the bible the bible is like a yearbook you know uh, of the different years you know and the year this year and that year how god coached people to miraculous greatness and see there's a pattern that they followed to the, that then you got to follow it too so the main characters in the bible are all the humans and the, and god well he's in a support a subordinate supporting role okay he makes cameo appearances you know, you know, and it's the idea that all of the people in the Bible, they're Rocky and, uh, and, and God, he's Mick, you know, get in there, rock. You got to get in there. And, you know, and women's weakened legs, you know, you got to punch them and hit them and, you know, that's, that, that's God's role. He's the coach. That is to miss the whole point of the Bible. The scriptures are about God. They are about not just God in general. They're about Christ. They are not about you. And God is not a supporting player in your life. He is not there to be a supporting role in your movie of your life. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Every knee will bow at the name of Christ and every tongue confess that he is Lord. We are Duloid. That means slaves, servants. That's, That's who we are. We are redeemed and purchased slaves and adopted sons and children of God. But God is the is the is everything. The purpose of Scripture is not to teach you how God coaches people to miraculous greatness. This isn't about you, it's about him. Oh boy. What a mess. I'm gonna to have to go floss my brain with something really you know, cleanse it out. Anyway, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's Facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you follow me on Twitter, my name there at Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow. May God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.